Welcome to the Into Security Chats podcast, brought to you by Info Security Magazine, the leading industry magazine and website for information and cybersecurity. I'm your host, Beth Mondral, Info Security's editor, and during this podcast, I will be shining the spotlight on some of the industry's finest minds. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this edition of the Into Security Chats podcast. This month, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Jason Nurse, who is Associate Professor in Cybersecurity at the University of Kent and a visiting academic at the University of Oxford. So welcome, Jason, and thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thank you very much for having me, Beth. I'm really excited to be here and really interested in talking about uh, cyber. Great. Thanks so much, Jason. So yeah, I am really looking forward to this chat because we're going to pick up on some of the areas of research that you've been working on, including cyber insurance and um, corporate comms following a cyber attack. These are two topics that are kind of constantly making headlines and continue to be super relevant. So looking forward to diving into those. But before we get into the meat of our discussion, one question we do ask all of our guests for before we kick off is a food and drink pairing they'd recommend to our listeners as they sit back and enjoy our conversation. So, Jason, what would you suggest? I know you gave this one quite a lot of thought as well. Yes, I did. I did. And and part of it was even wondering, you know, are people listening to this before midday or after midday? Because <laughs> uh, that, that also was quite relevant. Um, I think if, you, if you're listening to it after midday, I'd probably suggest a, maybe a wine and cheese pairing. Uh, I, like to, I like to think that's, that's probably uh, where what people should be uh, having a taste of during uh, the podcast. And if it's before lunch, uh, I would probably suggest a latte and a cinnamon bun. Uh, oh, that's, yes, indeed. So I did. I did think quite a lot about this, actually. <laughs> Probably way too much. <laughs> yeah, no, um, I would um, actually quite like a sweet pastry right now. Um, we're recording just after 11, so it's 11 C's time. A quick message from us here at Info Security Magazine before we continue with our chat. Info Security Magazine brings the latest knowledge and insights from the information security industry to our huge community of cybersecurity professionals. If you'd like to reach the ear of some of the professionals listening now and become a sponsor on our podcast, head to the contact page on the Info Security Magazine website at infosecurity-magazine.com forward slash contacts and reach out to us about this opportunity. Now, on with the chat. But before we dive into your research, I'd really be interested in, and I think our audience would be as well, in how you kind of found your way into the cyber field and also how you landed in the role as a cyber academic, because I think that's quite an interesting one. We hear a lot from industry experts that are either on the vendor side or the end user side. So the academic field is um, quite unique in a way so yeah how did you end up where you are now yeah i mean that's a really good question it's i've taken a quite a winding route in some ways actually when i reflect on it it was somewhat a very straight path so i did my undergraduate degree in computer science and accounting for a little while i was actually going to be an accountant i was I was employed by as an auditor by ernst and young and i sort of really enjoyed actually being an auditor but then 
I recognized that gradually I was actually much more interested in technology uh, and in computing in particular. Uh, after that, I, I did my master's and then eventually a PhD. And the topic I decided to focus on was security. Now, I do remember kind of when I reflect back and I think, well, why did I focus on topic of security? Part Partly it was I guess I, I always knew that there was something particularly interested or I always found something particularly interested in technology in general. In the context of security, sort of thinking, I guess, about making the world a better place or making technologies more secure or, or benefiting the wider society or protecting against the quote unquote bad guys. I think for me, that's probably one of the key drivers into into the area and and really thinking very much of, you know, having done the PhD in specifically looking at business security, for me, that was the platform to then decide, ah, actually, you know what, I'm I'm actually really interested in security. And at, back in those days, it was actually called e-security, uh, if anyone could cast their minds back to back to those days. And now, of course, the topic of cybersecurity. After I finished my PhD, I sort of had the decision, do I go into industry or academia? And the way I chose academia in particular, even though industry, you know, really exciting, lots of really cool stuff. Um, the reason I chose academia is simply because I always found I always have this passion for research and passion for cutting cutting edge work, like what's coming out next, what's going to be important, and how do we sort of drive understanding, drive uh, research um, across not only the industry but also academia, sort of being on the quote unquote cutting edge. So I think for me, those those, those are probably some of the key reasons why. Not only got into security because I just found it generally interesting and, and want to basically protect individuals and, and you know keep, keep things safe and secure, but also in terms of academia because of ideally wanting to be on sort of the bleeding edge of technology, the bleeding edge of security, thinking about how can I innovate, how can I make the world a better place, um, and focusing primarily on on that area. I know you're obviously in your role at the University of Kent, you lecture as well on cyber security. Has that kind of academic role of in cyber changed, do you think, as you've gone through your career? Because like when I went to university, I wouldn't have even known it was an option, to be honest with yeah. you. Like it would have been beyond me. There was no careers advisor saying, well, you could do a degree relating to technology security and stuff like that. What do you think the status of that academic approach to cyber security is now? I think it's completely changed actually over the last let's say five to ten years. Um, back when I was when I was doing my I don't know undergraduate or master's degrees, there were very few courses um focusing specifically on on cyber, uh cybersecurity. Even now they are what we what I've seen because I've actually done a little bit of research looking specifically at cyber skills and cyber skills provisions. And what we are seeing now is that there is an increasing number of masters courses specifically on cybersecurity. And, and of course, you know anyone from industry would know that there's you know a, a plethora of cybersecurity certifications and there's more and more of those coming out. But what we've seen, especially on the academic side, on the education higher education side, is there's a lot of masters courses. So the the idea seems to have been. You do a general undergraduate degree in computing, and then you sort of specialize in cybersecurity at master's level. But in the last couple of years, what we've seen more and more is actually cybersecurity being offered as an undergraduate degree as well. And, and Kent, for example, uh, offers a specialization in, in cybersecurity as an undergraduate degree, and as well as many other universities. I think this is an interesting progression to monitor because it clearly highlights that cyber isn't being viewed as this sort of general specialism area that you only can do at a master's level now or even certifications you can actually study it from as early as you know 18 years old or when you go in from an undergraduate degree so anyone out there uh, interested or, or have kids that are interested in cyber there are options now to study cyber specifically from um, your first degree so i think for me that's 
really, really recent. I think it's really good for the cyber market because we need more and more people in security. Yeah, 100%. It's so funny whenever I talk to people that have got different degree backgrounds. And I always think about when I did my degree, I did politics and international relations. And I love my job now as an editor and being able to dive into cybersecurity because of that. But I always think, oh, I wonder if I had known about these different industries and opportunities, whether I would have gone down a different path. So I think it's just now it's about raising the awareness with people that are 18 thinking about going to university that it is an option but that's definitely a discussion we could spend the next 45 minutes uh, (laughs) talking about but I really wanted to get into some of the research topics that you highlighted to me as we were kind of preparing for this call. One that I found particularly interesting is um Obviously, every time a cybersecurity incident happens, there is a, usually an organization involved that has fallen victim to the incident. And it's so important that their corporate comms is well received and provides the right type of information. And as a journalist, I'm usually quite in tune with what messaging is being pushed out by companies. And you often see organizations kind of grappling with timelines and what kind of information to disclose and what not to disclose, kind of to reassure their customers and stakeholders at large. So I know that you and a colleague, Richard Knight, wrote a framework on effective corporate communication after a cybersecurity incident. So I'd love to dive into kind of what the key elements of that framework are and the landscape corporate comms is working in today. But first, a quick message from us here at InfoSecurity Magazine. InfoSecurity Magazine brings you the latest knowledge and insights into the information security industry. As well as listening to our podcast, you can join our award-winning editorial team during regular webinars, online summits and live events, as well as access to all the latest cybersecurity news and analysis via our website, infosecurity-magazine.com. So head to the website to sign up for all the sessions, receive regular news and to earn CPE credits. Access all the information you need to know in one place at infosecuritymagazine.com. Now, on with the chat. Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, that that piece of research I've, I've wanted to do for such a long period of time because it is critical. And I think the reality is that uh, for a number of years, and this this you know first this this bit of work and, and trying to pursue this bit of work um, came to me probably around 2014, 2015, even though we only released the framework in, in 2020. But for me, what, what was key and the real motivation behind this work and why I think it is, is super important is the reality is that for many organizations, it's not necessarily whether you'll fall for breach, it's sort of when you fall for breach or, or when, you're, when, you, when you're successfully compromised. And I'm not saying this to be you know overly pessimistic because of course organizations should do everything that they can to prevent, prevent against uh, breaches, attacks, ransomware, you know, the variety of um, threats that, that could target them, other actors that could target them. But the reality is that attackers just need to be successful once, and companies need to, you know, companies on the other hand, just need to slip up once. 
of course, we can talk about defensive depth and various things, but really the reality is that companies just need to slip up once. So the numbers in general are very much against companies, especially now because attackers have an increasing amount of resources available to them. Um, when you think about the amounts of uh, money that these ransomware groups today are making, you know, it's, it's astronomical when we think about it. So the, when we consider that the reality is that companies will fall for a breach at some point, then what we need to think about is how do the how do organizations respond? How do they communicate? How do they engage with stakeholders? And that's what this work really was all about. Because it became clear to me, watching Breach time and time again um, in the media, release um, notes and releases by companies, companies, or a lot of companies didn't really know what to say, how to say, who should say what. It was almost like almost like guesswork, like a company gets breached and the next day they have to go in the media and they're stumbling because they don't know what to say. They don't have all the information that they need to have. They don't know who to contact. I mean, a really good example is I remember an organization that was breached and they released, I think it was, they paid for a full page ad in a newspaper and they posted it on Twitter. I think that's that, that was their approach. And that was those were the first things that they did. And they posted it on Twitter and someone responded on Twitter, probably one of the customers that had been impacted. And the customer said, hey, wait, wait a minute, what's going on here? I heard there's been a breach. Why, why didn't you reach out to me? And the company said, oh, well, we posted on Twitter. We released something in the in the in the newspaper. We actually went on the on the news and we mentioned this. And the person said, yes, but if it's my data, why didn't you contact me directly? You know, and, and what became very, very apparent watching all of these things play out in the media is that many organizations didn't know how to respond what to do, what to do next, things to consider. So that basically was the motivation of this piece of work. How can we help educate organizations? How can we help nudge organizations or actually just provide the support organizations need in terms of how to communicate, how to prepare, what to think about, what not to think about, how to rehearse, and, and all of these kind of things is what we try to pack into that framework. So, you know, a couple of years ago, what we released essentially is a sort of what we call it is a framework for effective corporate communications. And it's available online. Um, it's widely available to anyone to go and grab a copy of. And what we do is we essentially break it down into two key areas. Firstly, what organizations need to do before a breach occurs. So basically right now, and then what need to do after, because just focusing on the after doesn't work because there's a lot of preparatory things that one needs to do beforehand. And then the reality is that so in the before the breach occurs or, or pre-breach, you know, you need to think about where your customer is based. What if do you have um, templates of um, press releases ready? Do you have um, do you conduct rehearsals in terms of a breach with your stakeholders or key business partners? So you need to think very carefully about all of that and the juris even the jurisdictions of your customers. So when you think about that, then that sets you up really nicely. And then in the next phase, we provide a number of guidance in terms of thinking about how to disclose information, what to disclose, is social media better, is it worse? What works better for certain demographics? And to think about even the question of whether you should disclose or not. You know, in some scenarios, some organizations refuse to disclose because they think, okay, well, I've actually, you know, that data is fully encrypted, so I don't have to disclose. But then what we've recognized is that in some of those scenarios, you know, a couple months later, um, it's released that this organization was breached and that this data is available online. And it just works even worse for the organization in terms of because it seems like they've tried to hide it. So so that's what this framework tries to do. It really tries to provide a basis for any organization out there to go and to figure out what do we need to consider, when do we need to consider it, 
and how do I actually deliver that message and engage externally on the topic of corporate communications after they've been victim of a data breach? So that's it sort of in a nutshell. It's preparing for like a crisis event, really, isn't it? Yeah. It's making sure that your organisation, big, small, knows the procedures in place when, like you said, unfortunately, it is somewhat inevitable. And I think we have seen where companies have not disclosed and then been forced to disclose um, at a later date. And when you start looking at what's released, the timelines, you're like, well, hang on, the first time you mentioned it was two months after you're saying you identified a threat. And it just impacts the brand so much that yep, it should agreed. really be it should really be top of mind. So you published the framework in, as you said, 2020. You've been working on it for a long time since you published it. Have you seen people successfully use it? Have you been working with companies that have actually implemented it? And like from them, what has the feedback been? Is it something they found useful? Have they added anything to it or been like, oh, actually, we don't really, we already were doing that perhaps? Once again, really good question. So yes, there's been a number of organizations that have actually reached out to me and specifically they were, they were interested in understanding how can the framework work for them? Um, there have been even, even number of um, sector bodies um, interested in reaching out to me and basically engaging on the framework and trying, even in some ways, to get the framework customized for them and for their purposes. Um, so definitely seen that. There's been a lot of great take up from companies because what what became quite clear for a number of companies actually is that they don't have this internally and that in such a scenario, what they would have to do is reach out to a crisis response firm. So I've been I've been in various places speaking on the framework and actually giving guidance in terms of what organizations need to do, how they need to do it. Uh, so it's, I think the uptake has been fabulous, really. And I've been invited to a number of places to speak specifically on the framework, how it works, how it can work for them, how it can work for businesses, and how it can actually help them um, in terms of better managing this cyber crisis situation. I would even mention that, so there's been a number of key key parties um, um, that have adopted the framework and have taken it up. Unfortunately, I can't really mention some of them because they, they they don't want to be mentioned for whatever reason. But one I will mention in particular, and this one is publicly available online, is Cyber Scotland, the Scottish Business Resilience Centre. They have actually taken my framework and actually posted it as sort of official guidance on their website. For Scottish businesses who, of course, are thinking about instant response, they're thinking about instant planning, they're thinking about how can we respond via um, how can we respond after a cyber breach? So they have actually released the framework on their website as official guidance. So that that you know that for me is amazing. And like I said, there's been a number of other businesses, not only actually in the UK but also in the US and, and other ways that have actually picked up the framework. I have ran with it and said, "Yo, this is great. You know, really, really happy to have this." Of course, it's freely available, so it's not something you need to pay for. And at the very basis, what it can do, and even if an organization didn't want to implement it directly, what it does do is just provide a framework to say, here is all the things you need to think about. Because if you do get impacted by a breach, by a cyber attack, by ransomware, but whatever it is, here is what you need to think about. And here is how the sequence in which you need to think about. And here are the implications of doing something this way versus another way. Um, and a couple of things I wanted to pick up on that you kind of mentioned when you were talking about what the framework includes is like who is responsible for 
discussing the information. So when you've got the press release saying we've been breached, this is what's happened. Is it the CEO that should be like quoted as saying something reassuring? Is it the CISO? Who, who's the person that you recommend kind of tries to relay the message to the public, the customers, the, the key stakeholders? Because there's probably a lot of CISOs that are like, oh, I'm not necessarily the corporate voice or I am, that falls under me. Where does that um, that kind of lie in terms of the, the C-suite? Yeah, it, it varies considerably. Um, and sometimes it can actually relate quite a bit to the size of the breach. So this is an area that's probably highly debatable. And we've seen a lot of organizations do various different things. I've seen a number of CEOs going in front of the media uh, and speaking on breaches. I've also seen IT managers. I've seen um, CISOs. So there's a variety of individuals. So I don't think there is any, I think for me, the, one of the key factors is how significant is the breach? Well, I'm not saying that losing a thousand records is insignificant, that's very different to using a million records or to having a million records lost. And of course, what the records contain is also quite pertinent. So if the records contain passport information, if they were considered bank account information, of course, this is much more substantial. And what we've seen is that it's important for senior people in the organization to communicate and convey this message. One, that's probably one of the key, because what we don't want is a scenario where let's say 100,000 people's data is lost, potentially quite sensitive data. And then someone very junior going in front of the media, because what that conveys to, to, to some people is, well, this is clearly this, this company is not taking this seriously because this is a very junior person presenting and engaging with the media. So this is why I think we've seen a number of breaches, actually the CEO coming out and actually delivering a lot of these messages because the CEO is the corporate head of the business. Yes, they might be informed by the CISO um, or the CIO, but often we've seen this, the CEO coming out and being the one that delivers the message. Uh, another reason for that is probably because a CISO or CEO, sorry, uh, might be more sort of, uh, might be trained up in terms of PR. So another thing we've seen sometimes yeah. is that businesses go out and the person that speaks is not, you know, the person is amazing at their job but they're probably not the best person to speak on camera because it just doesn't work uh, yeah. that way. So this is, I've, I think all of these dynamics come into play. Yeah, I've seen I've seen that across my career, not necessarily in terms of like crisis response, but just interviews I've been doing with members of different organizations where you can kind of clearly see when someone's not got that level of media training that they need to be able to clearly convey a message. So it's not someone you would pick to do something in crisis response. And I guess like you said, in terms of the size of the breach, you also don't want to get the CEO on camera if it's not a huge issue, the data isn't necessarily significant because then that can panic people thinking almost the opposite to what you said about the junior staff member talking like, oh, you don't care enough, but also, oh, it's a huge issue. The CEO's out there, but actually it's it's a lot more containable. And just the last thing on this, you kind of mentioned social media. I think Uber, when they had their recent breach, they posted on um, social media kind yeah. of what was happening. And you can kind of see that makes sense because of the type of company they are, the reach they have on yeah. social media. Um, so I'm guessing you would say it, would, it depends on your organization. Um, what's the kind of like advice for the use of Twitter? Because it can really, really backfire for sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it it really can. Um, you know, Twitter storms are, are a real thing and, and they can really overwhelm an organization. I think there is probably no perfect way in the context of that. I think releasing a message on as many communication channels as possible is 
ideal. It depends, of course, quite a bit on the organization's customer base and stakeholder base. So you might imagine that Uber decided to do this because potentially Uber knows that a lot of their clientele are on social media. So they might have decided, okay, well, this is a good way to, to reach as many people as possible. Now, probably what I would always say is, especially when it comes to, to Twitter and similar platforms, it's super important for organizations to think not only about releasing the message on these platforms, but dealing with the blowback, dealing with the responses. Nothing annoys people more than a message being put out there that data has been lost or that there's been, you know, you know, some some reason why, you know, the services that people have paid for is not offline. And people are responding on social media and not getting a response back because this just antagonizes people. It annoys people uh, and it really basically makes people even more agitated with what's going on. In it. So one of the key messages and even this relates to not only social media, but call centers, anything like that when when a breach is announced or when a security uh, incident is announced, organizations, especially an incident that impacts um, a large customer base, organizations need to have appropriate capacity set up to respond to people in a timely manner. This is yeah. critical for that yeah. brand, as you mentioned before, for that brand, for, for keeping people on board, it, it's critical. Yeah, I think probably a lot of people listening have been on the receiving end of sending out a, a tweet or a message to a brand and then just getting radio silence. And it is quite frustrating when you're trying, when you can see they're using social media as a communications channel but not using it to the full extent that it ought to be used so it's kind of like getting that right but it is very resource intensive so um, definitely organizations need to have a handle on how they can best um, manage that side of things so for obviously for anyone listening if you want to dive into the framework a little bit more um, you can head to the um, internet just do a search of the name of the piece it's called effective corporate communication after cybersecurity incidents and you'll be able to um, take a look at what we've been talking about so companies have got their comms strategy they've got the framework set in place they're all good to go but with the idea like you said that a cyber incident is likely inevitable and going to happen. I think it's interesting that you've done research on cyber insurance and like where that fits in. And it's something that continuously gets talked about, what companies need to do, what the cyber insurance market looks like. Recently, like headlines were kind of grabbed when Lloyds of London said it would no longer include nation state attacks in cyber insurance policies. Um, so we can clearly see it's still an evolving um, sector. So I guess, what do you think of cyber insurance today? How important is it? And what, what should organisations be considering? So cyber insurance is, is I think it's important. Uh, I think it's increasingly important. So I have done research um, and actually very practitioner focused research on cyber insurance now for probably the last six years or so. And this time I've had the opportunity to work closely with cyber insurance companies, security companies, and really try to understand what is cyber insurance, one, and what value can cyber insurance bring to businesses, two. And then thirdly, how does cyber insurance fit in with the general idea of cybersecurity? So very early on, as cyber insurance was was perceived, uh, there was lots of discussion around whether businesses would view cyber insurance as an alternative to security. So so people would basically buy insurance 
and they wouldn't behave securely. So they would think, oh, well, I can just buy insurance and then I don't really have to care about certain security controls or I don't have to care about really doing well on my security because if there's a breach, I'll just go to the, the insurance company and claim and I'll get paid out. So yeah, no problem. The reality actually is that the insurance is much more complex than that, but in some ways it's also much more simple in that the insurance proposition, uh, which has actually you know really taken off during the last couple of years in particular, is we will provide an option for you if there is an incident for you to claim, but also we will provide an option for you to support you during such a scenario. So for, I mean, it works really well. And a good analogy is the car insurance in that if you have an accident when you're in your car, especially if you have an insurer that handles everything for you, you call up the insurance company and you tell them about the accident. The insurance company then reaches out to a breakdown company on your behalf. They reach out to potentially a garage on your behalf. They start to think about maybe getting you a hired car. And so they have all of these additional, I guess, services that they can provide on top of just, of course, having insurance with them. And what we've seen as well in cyber insurance is similar things like this popping out. We see that cyber insurance providers are increasingly, and this is where I think for a lot of companies, there's quite a bit of value. We see that cyber insurance providers are providing a one-stop shop. If a company gets breached, they can call up the insurance provider. Insurance provider can hook them up or connect them with digital forensics teams, incident response teams. Uh, they can hook them up with certain data breach counsel, so sort of legal support and a variety of, uh, and of course, in the end, help with the claim related to the financial loss related to the incident in itself. Additionally, insurance providers can also, and, and have and have actually re more recently started to even provide support at the time of, at the time where you sign up for a policy. So they might say, oh, okay, you're signing up for a policy with us. Here are a few security, here's a security training suite, a cybersecurity training suite that you can offer uh, that we can give you as part of your deal. Or we can offer you this specific security monitoring software as part of the the, the policy. So I think for me, cyber insurance is a really good proposition. It's starting to get better and better. Yes, of course, agree. There's lots of coverage around it with, with the laws of London and the announcement respect to nation state attacks. That's a really interesting one. And that's the interesting one that many people are still talking about um, because, you know, how does, how does an organization know whether it's been breached by a nation state or not? Uh, and then of course, this, this impacts the claim. So a lot of still, stuff is still being played out in the insurance market, but I do think it has come quite far and it has a really good amount to offer in the context of security. Yeah, that's interesting what you picked up on there about like the additional services, because I think a lot of people just think about the payout. But yeah, if you have a car accident, I mean, I've had people bump into me and you get a, and you just think, well, I just phone the insurance company, they'll deal with it all. It takes that little bit of stress of you thinking, oh, I need to get this repaired and uh, do all those, as you said, like kind of contact all those people um, to kind of get your issue solved. So it's interesting to highlight that it's not just about the payout, it's about the supporting services that come with it. I wanted to mention the research you have done. So you were part of a paper um, that was published by um, Rusi in the UK, which I think has a really interesting title, which is Incentivizing Cybersecurity Through Cyber Insurance. And I know that we can't fully dissect the entire paper in this podcast, but like the one you were talking about with corporate comms, it is available online. Um, but what were some of the most 
important findings. And one thing I'm quite interested in is why is it something that Rusi was keen to be a part of? Because they're typically known for more defence related research and work as well. Yeah, so the, this this paper is was a really good one, and this is funded by a national cybersecurity centre. This is essentially funded by national cybersecurity centre, and I think the reality is that the national cybersecurity centre is really interested in understanding cyber insurance and just generally understanding cybersecurity incentives, um, the incentives of people to act as we want in the context of cybersecurity. So that bit of work and that 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 research emerged from a project funded by the national cybersecurity centre, so the, the UK NCSC. Uh, really trying to explore what value can cyber insurance bring to cybersecurity. We found a number of key things. We found that firstly, cyber insurance can actually be extremely valuable to, to, to cybersecurity, but the reality is that lots of things need to be there beforehand. So at the point we did that work, and we've done actually a bit of quite a bit of work since then around this topic as well. In that work, we found, for example, that yes, cyber insurance can actually benefit security really well, but at that point in time, the semi-insurance market was a soft market. Now, what a soft market essentially means is that there are a lot of providers of cyber insurance. So therefore, the ability for the for these providers to actually influence security behavior is less than it would be in a harder market. Now, a harder market is 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 different because there are less providers of cyber insurance. So there's if people want to buy cyber insurance, there is less availability of cyber insurance and these smaller member providers can actually make more significant demands on clients wanting cyber insurance as the opposite of if there's lots of providers so if you think about a market if there's lots of providers each provider is trying to beat the other providers so they're less likely to be stringent in what they're um, requesting from from potential clients and we saw that play out really in the cyber insurance market uh, so what we found was, for example, yes, the same insurance, same insurance could incentivize better security behavior. However, in the soft market, it was very hard to do. In a harder market, what we would have, and we're actually approaching, um, for many people, we're actually in a hard market right now in the context of cyber. Insurance providers can more clearly say, if you want cyber insurance from us, you need to do X, Y, and Z in the context of security. And this means that same insurers can actually put more requirements on businesses in terms of what they require. So, for example, if you want to buy cyber insurance, you have to complete cyber essentials. You have to have cyber essentials. You have to um, be be signed up to ISO 27000. You have to be following the NIST cybersecurity framework. And you can sort of make those requirements of organization. So I think those that's probably one of the key findings in the context of that bit of work in that, yes, cyber insurance can actually incentivize However, there are things that need to be in place for that to happen. In the context of Rusi and Rusi's engagement, and this is really, it was a really good relationship and we have still an ongoing, really strong ongoing partnership between Kent and Rusi. And I'm actually an associate fellow at, in the cyber group at Rusi as well. And one of the big benefits there is that, um, yes, Rusi has traditionally been known for sort of defense and security, but Rusi also has a very strong cyber uh, group and so it's a very strong cyber team. And they're focusing more on more in, of course, the topics such as cyber policy, but also topics of national importance, such as cyber insurance. So cyber insurance is a pretty big topic of national insurance because, you know, the UK government and other governments across the world are even trying, you know, are tra grappling to understand the value that cyber insurance can bring to the wider market and how much organization or how much governments should actually be involved in potentially the regulation of cyber insurance or how it should work as a as a market. Um, for example, we've seen some governments across the world think about potentially banning cyber insurance providers from paying 
um, certain claims or paying ransom, for example. But in general, that's probably why uh, potentially Rusi is interested um, because, you know, they have a very strong cyber group. Um, I engage with them quite a lot. And I think we've found a really good partnership between Rusi, of course, on the policy side, um, really strong, well-known think tank. And then Kent, uh, in terms of my involvement in, in particular, really trying to bring the the extra academic emphasis and focus, uh, and especially my background in particular in cyber insurance. Yeah, I think it's really interesting, like you said as well, like governments are trying to figure out how they play a role in regulating what is essentially a new and emerging market. So um, with that kind of in mind, and based on the research you've done, what you know up to now, what do you think is kind of next? And what should businesses themselves consider when they're looking at cyber insurance themselves now? I think when businesses think about cyber insurance, they really need to carefully consider what's a value proposition for them. So what are they getting out of this cyber insurance policy? The reality is that as you know, cyber insurance has changed quite a bit over the last 10 years, it's really important for businesses when it comes up to policy renewal or if businesses are thinking about purchasing cyber insurance, don't take things for granted. Really good example of this is, you know, ransomware has really taken the market by storm. Insurers know this, of course, cybersecurity professionals know this, you know, many people listening right now know this. You know, for a long, for, for some period of time, ransomware was covered in cyber insurance policies. Now we're actually seeing gradually some policies are actually excluding ransomware coverage and you have to buy that as an additional add-on to your cyber insurance policy. So that's something, you know, just one example of something that's very relevant, that's very pertinent, no, very topical. That's one thing to look out for. Another thing, one, two ways in which you might think about cyber insurance, um, especially if thinking about you're purchasing it, purchasing it, is some cyber insurance policies are um, included or sort of add-on. So you might, for example, have a professional indemnity insurance or uh, E&O insurance or, or anything like that, and you might actually add on a cyber insurance policy. So that's sort of, um, you know, just something that's added on. And then there's separately, there's something called a standalone cyber insurance policy. Now, businesses sort of get this wrong. I've seen businesses get this wrong on, on a number of scenarios, another a number of cases. This add-on policy, so the first one I mentioned, usually offers much less coverage, much less add-on, much less um, benefits and so on than the standalone policy. Now, of course, standalone policy is more expensive. It's a far, it's more very much a dedicated policy. So as a business, you really need to think about, OK, what do I have? What are my risks? What I want to protect against? How do I want to do cyber insurance? Is it right for me to use an add-on policy? So basically just adding on to the, the current policies that I have, or do I want a dedicated standalone cyber insurance policy? From a security perspective, the dedicated policy makes more sense and it offers significant amounts, significantly more amounts of protection. But of course, that needs to be a business decision in terms of what's the best for a business. So probably those are the two things I would definitely suggest to, to have a look on. Um, I do think the semi insurance market is going to continue to change over the next few months and years, especially as the market hardens and insurers are much more aware of the risk of cyber. You know, insurers have had a really big challenge dealing with cyber over the last, uh, you know, 10, 20 years. They're getting better at understanding cyber. They're getting better at pricing cyber and all these things will impact people's policies. Yeah, it's so interesting because it is such an evolving um, market and something that businesses are obviously very aware of now. But it's kind of finding that balance is what your risk is and what you as a business need compared to what actually is being offered out there 
um, in the market. And I think you've given like a really great kind of quick overview. If anyone would like to kind of follow up with the Rusi piece that was uh, published, that can be found on the Rusi website. And the the title of the paper was Incentivizing Cybersecurity Through Cyber Insurance. So do have a quick search for that because I think it's a really interesting read. If I could also just add, um, we've released actually another article since then called Cyber Insurance and the Cybersecurity Challenge. So if there's anyone also interested in sort of a follow-up work, which actually really delves even more into that problem, please will also have a look at that um, article. It's also available on the Rusi website. Oh, fabulous. So I was going to ask as well, just as we kind of conclude the chat, we've been able to focus on two really, really interesting and really important pieces of work that you've done. I know there's a plethora of other subjects that you tackle with your um, cybersecurity research, but is there anything coming up or recently um, released that our audience can kind of check out and maybe think about and maybe we could have a chat about in the future? Uh, there's probably there's probably loads of things. Um, I, I definitely suggest that I've been focusing, um, especially a bit more these days, on uh, personal information and private information and what it means. And you know, information in many ways, you know, information is a big currency for us going forward. I think in the world. So for me, having a better understanding of personal information, what it means, what it means for businesses, what it means for governments, for for industry. Uh, for individuals, for me, that's a really good big question. Of course, how do we keep that information secure and safe? Um, another big topic for me coming up is the topic of cybersecurity culture. Um, this is a big one, I think, because thankfully we're now starting to move away from things like um, phishing, just focus on phishing and just thinking about the basics of cybersecurity. And I really want to push the agenda to organizations to think more about what is a cyber, what is the organization's cybersecurity culture and how do we actually make that culture better? How do we get people innately thinking about security rather than thinking about security as an afterthought or security as a blocker? I think what really to get people thinking about is how do we make security an enabler for people's day jobs and how do we actually change people's behavior such that they think more carefully about security in what they're doing? Uh, so for me, those are probably two of the big ones. And probably the last one I'll mention really briefly is the topic of um, security and security for families. So I have, I also have an ongoing research project. Um, I'm really fortunate to work with, with a really awesome uh, person on this. And what she's been doing is really trying to explore uh, UK families and the, their understanding of security. And also how do we protect UK families in the context of using smart devices, smart technologies, and how do we get it such that UK families are able to use these devices safely and securely. Uh, she's currently developing a game actually uh, a board game to actually educate uk families in the context of engaging properly with security and safety um so i'm really excited about that bit of piece of work and that will definitely be uh, out and available soon definitely happy to come back and talk more about that oh that sounds so interesting especially bringing cyber security to everyone's level so it's not just this big scary thing that only cybersecurity professionals understand but everyone whether they're working in an organization that needs to be cyber vigilant or just at home I think it's really important that everyone has an understanding and it's not just this big scary thing that oh it's just noughts and ones and no one gets it and it's ransomware and hackers like so um yeah when the game comes out please let the info security magazine team know because i think we'd love to uh 
publish uh, what it's all about and uh, talk about it further. But I think we've covered so much and there's obviously a lot more that we would have loved to have dived into and um, potentially opportunity for further conversations. But um, with that, we've kind of come to the end of the episode um, of the Chats podcast today. So thank you so much, Jason, for joining me and going through everything. But with that, I'll say goodbye to everyone. Bye, everyone. Bye. Thanks, Beth. Bye. Bye, everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of Into Security Chats. For more from the Info Security team, make sure you head to our website to check out all the latest news, opinion, blogs, webinars and live events. And we look forward to you joining us again next month on the Chats podcast to hear from our future industry leading guests. Thank you.